Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about faith and how, how, how it works exactly. <laughs> that, that might sound a little bit bold, but I'm, I'm sincere in saying that. At, at least one aspect, at least one aspect. And we, we're at a turning point in the Torah right now. And, you know, whatever's going on in, in the Torah is going on in the world. So that means that energetically, if I can phrase it that way, there's a, there's a shift going on. Because we've gone from Sefer Breshis, from the Book of Creation, into Sefer Shmos, Exodus, Names, Redemption, Exile, right? All, all of these things are now coming into play as we start this new book in the Torah. And at the beginning of the book, you see Yosef's name is mentioned, I counted three times, right in the very beginning. So you can say, well, wait a second. If you want to say Torah's teachings about Joseph, Yosef Hatzadik, Yosef the Righteous, you had the last few weeks to say over those, those teachings when we were studying him. Like, why are you talking about it now? Well, I'm talking about it now because the Torah itself is talking about Yosef. So that, that gives me permission to talk about Yosef. But I think that the Torah is mentioning Yosef as we move thematically, energetically into this idea of exile and redemption. It's teaching us about how we're supposed to view the exile and redemption in our own lives and what all this has to do with Amunah. So with that in mind, let's propose the following question. And I think it's a very big question, one that we have to live with. How is it possible that Yosef was able to forgive his brothers for selling him into slavery? How is that humanly possible that he was able to do it? So there's a lot of answers that you can give. One is that Yosef really grew up with this idea of destiny. Like, can you imagine, like, we believe that there's a redemption that's going to happen in the world, and it's going to happen through the Jewish people, right? The Mashiach is Jewish. And the Mashiach is not just representing the Jewish people, he's representing the entire world. In fact, I heard from Reb Shlomo that that's one of the reasons why Mashiach's lineage is so diverse. In other words, Mashiach has descended from Jews, from non-Jews, from people from a very high spiritual level down to the lowest spiritual level. So why is that? Why would, why would the Messiah have such a complicated lineage? Right? Just say that he's, you know, from Sadiqim all the way back, and that's the end of the discussion. And the answer is, is because when the Mashiach arrives, he's going to be representing all peoples of the world, Jews and non-Jews, at every spiritual level. So, so his own background reflects it as well. So you have to understand, God made these promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and it was passed down to Yosef and to all of the brothers of the tribes. And so this family grew up, you can imagine, like being part of this family. 
this family grew up very intimately with the idea that a tremendous salvation is going to happen through them. And now you've got Yosef, who's just the great-grandson of Abraham. So that's, that's pretty close. I mean, Abraham is very much still a reality like, you know, great-grandfather Abraham. You know, he's not an idea. He's very much a person in their life still. As is Yitzhak and is, as, is Yo, as is Yaakov. So when Yosef becomes the ruler of all of Egypt, in other words, he is experiencing firsthand in his life those things that the family understood was going to happen. So on the one hand, I'm sure he was amazed. And on the other hand, he's like, it's happening. <laughs> it's happening. It is happening right now. Just like, just like they said it was going to happen. And it's happening with me. Okay. So you could say, returning back to our question, how is it possible, just humanly possible, that Yosef could have forgiven his brothers for selling him into slavery? And by the way, you, you, you could say that, well, you know something, it could have been worse. They wanted to murder me. So if they only sold me into slavery, I can cut them some slack, right? Well, I, okay, I don't think that's normal. Okay, so, so I, I don't think we would say that. By the way, I want to tell you two teachings that I heard from Reb Shlomo about the selling of Yosef by the brothers. Uh, two, like, really awesome teachings. One is that after the brothers sold Yosef, they turned to each other and they said, did we do that? And they heard a voice from heaven and God said, no, I did it. So that, that, that's intense. That's intense. Now here, listen to this teaching, right? This one I, I, I have never seen anyone repeat, but I heard it from Reb Shlomo, which is that at the time of the selling of Yosef, Yosef blessed Yehuda that he should do tshuva. Right? Remember now, Yehuda then becomes the master of tshuva. And Yehuda blessed Yosef that he would always be a tzaddik. Can you, can you picture that? Can you picture this like incredibly emotional farewell between Yosef and Yehuda? Yosef, as he's being sold into slavery, blessing Yehuda that he should do tshuva. And Yehuda blessing Yosef that he should always remain a tzaddik. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Okay. So now you could say that Yosef achieved extreme success. And because Yosef achieved extreme success, that basically he saw his brothers and he's like, you know, I'm in such a good place right now. All right, you tried to hurt me. Whatever. All is forgiven. Right? Like, imagine someone is like a billionaire, and they meet someone who, when they were younger, cheated them out of, you know, some money. You know what? I'm a billionaire right now. Okay, you cheated me out of that money. I forgive you. So some people think that that's where the forgiveness was coming from. All right, but let's go a little bit deeper. So answer number one was that he knew he was destined for this, so he didn't hold them accountable. 
But can I tell you something? There are a lot of people who achieve great success and they continue to hate and resent everyone who doubted them along the way. So I promise you the idea that the fact that he was a success does not automatically mean that he would forgive those people who tried to stop him along the way. In fact, sometimes it's the opposite. It's sort of like, and sometimes people are driven to success to say, you doubted me. I'm going to become a great success to show you, to show you that I really had the goods and you doubted me. And then when they achieve the success, they are so happy to have that taina, that complaint disproved against the people. So in other words, that tension and that anger is still there. So success, quote unquote, doesn't necessarily erase the anger from your heart. So again, our question, how was Yosef able to forgive his brothers? Okay? So I think that the answer you're probably all thinking, and it is the answer, but we have to add to it because, because it's not enough. Bless you. So I'm sure the answer you're all thinking, and you're wondering, when am I going to get to it already, is that Yosef knew that it was from God. And that, in fact, is the answer, but it's not the whole answer. And remember, we're using this to learn about something else. We're learning about how we can believe in God. All right? So we're going to use Yosef as an example, but then we're going to go deeper in terms of our own life. Now, I want to read you the amazing thing that Yosef says. This is in Breshis, Genesis chapter 44, verse 5. Okay? Here's Yosef speaking to his brothers after he's finally revealed himself to them that he wasn't this like maniacal viceroy who was determined to destroy them, but he was in fact Yosef, their brother. And he says, And now be not distressed, nor reproach yourselves for having sold me here, for it was to be a provider that God sent me ahead of you. And then he explains to them that a famine, a great famine is coming to the land that had already started at that point, and that everyone was going to starve to death. And God worked this miraculous set of events to make sure that people would not starve to death, including his own family. So you say, okay, so that's the answer. But here's what I want to add. And maybe this is going to sound like a subtle point to you. But it's not a subtle point. This little thing I'm adding right now is going to make all the difference in the world, not just in terms of understanding who Yosef was and the greatness of Yosef, but in terms of understanding how we can actually change our lives through believing in God. And here's the point. Yosef didn't just say that God had sent him there to provide for the family, to provide for the world. Yosef actually believed it. (laughs) He actually believed it. All right, so I'm going to explain to you what I mean by that. You see, so often in our own lives, 
we learn certain things and, you know, maybe we'll even say them over. But learning something and believing something is all of the difference in the entire world. It's all the difference in the world. If we want to grow as human beings, as spiritual entities, as people trying to attach themselves to God and to truth in this world, you have to actually believe it. You can't just know it. You have to actually believe it. So what does it mean? What does it mean? Because these distinctions might be a little bit esoteric in your mind. What is the difference? It's how you see the world, and it's how you see God. And now I'm going to throw in the key word. I told you in the beginning, I want to teach you how to believe. Okay? Well, here's the secret ingredient to belief. You have to know that God is good. And you have to know that every single thing that's happening to you and into the entire world is because God wants good and to give over good. Even if it hurts, even if there's suffering, that God is coming from a place of genuine good and genuine love. And if you actually understand that, and you actually believe that, then you see the events in your life, even incredibly painful events, in a completely different way. Yosef was able to forgive his brothers because he actually believed that everything that he had gone through was God doing something for him for the good. You know, I saw a description of the Kutzka Rebbe. You know, the Kutzka Rebbe is all about truth. And they, they used this description of him. You know, I don't know if he would agree or not, but I, I found this very compelling, you know. He said that he had this existential view of the world that basically all that exists is him and God. Okay, so you could, you could misinterpret those words and think that that's a very selfish kind of orientation. But he was a tzaddik, and he was not selfish at all. But he understood when everything boils down to it, when everything boils down to it, when you get to the, just the bottom, 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 bottom line, it's basically you and God. And I think that if someone uses that model properly, that there's tremendous growth that a person can make in their life. Because all of a sudden, you strip away the entire victim consciousness that we're so prone to and so vulnerable to in today's society where whatever is going wrong in your life is everyone else's fault. And when you think that there's only you and God and that God doesn't do anything 
except for the good and out of love, it literally changes the way you go through life or how you see life. So on the one hand, Yosef knows that he's got brothers and Yosef knows that they sold him into slavery because they didn't want to kill him. But that was the alternative. They weren't letting him go. <laughs> There's no version where they were letting him go. It's either we're going to kill him or we're going to sell him. And yet Yosef sees this, that the brothers are somehow just pawns. They're just pawns. And you know something? That teaching that I brought you, that after Yosef was sold and the brothers turned to each other and they said, did we do that? And they hear a voice from heaven and God says, no, I did it. That's support to show you that on some crucial level that the brothers were pawns. Okay. So, listen. We have to be careful when we learn deep ideas like this because we have to make sure that they're not being learned in an improper way. That doesn't mean, God forbid, I can do anything that I want. You know, lie, cheat, and steal and say, oh, I'm a pawn of God. <laughs> this is your problem. It's not my problem. No, 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 no. It's very much your problem if you're doing that. We each have obligations, and we each can view ourselves as a pawn. And if we make a mistake, then we have to go back and we have to correct the mistake. And remember the amazing words of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. If you believe that you can break something, you also have to believe that you can fix it. So whatever it is, to the best of our ability, we try to fix it and we take responsibility for our own actions. But I want to get back to the secret ingredient. The secret ingredient to belief is understanding that God is good and that everything that's happening in our life is coming from God from a place of love and goodness. You know, I once, if you want a visual for that, I once kind of pictured this. Someone's walking down a, a pathway and they wander off the path. You know, they go, so to speak, off the derech, right? They wander off a path and they walk into the middle of a thick hedge, a large thick hedge of rose bushes. Now, I don't know if you know what a rose bush is like, but the rose bushes have these stems and these stems have really sharp thorns, like really sharp thorns. Like they will cut you and make you bleed. I, I once saw one, one time, like, it said we can rejoice that a thorn bush has roses, <laughs> or we can cry that a rose bush has thorns. It's up to you how you want to look at things, you know? I... I once realized, and it might sound like a cliche, but it's not a cliche. You know, we talk about uh, seeing a glass, you know, that's filled to the middle. You can say it's half full or half empty. 
that's a, you know, a real kind of like Rorschach test as to what kind of personality that you have. When you, when you look at your life, are you seeing the things that are missing? First and foremost, are you seeing the blessings? And here's what I would suggest, and I, I think that this is a big idea. You can choose, and it's by 100% a choice. You can make the choice to look at the world through the lens of everything that you have. Or you can make the choice, and it is a choice, to look at the world through the lens of everything that you're missing. And guess what? You get to choose. You get to decide which pair of glasses that you want to wear. And if you want to say that the world forced these glasses on me that make me see the world through everything that I don't have, you're a fool. I apologize if that was insensitive. But, but a person has to take responsibility and know that that choice is theirs. It doesn't mean that now that I'm seeing the world through everything that I have, that magically I'm not missing anything. You can still be missing things that you want very much, and God should bless us all that we should get those things fast. Whoever needs kids, whoever needs a husband or a wife, or whoever needs shalom bayis or pornosa or, or a rafua should get it fast. Amen. But that doesn't mean that a person, because they're lacking one of those things that they need, should only see the world through the lens of lacking that thing or those things. That's the choice. Let me, let me tell you something. I read this study that I, I think is like endlessly fascinating. And they said that it was an Israeli doctor who did it. You know, that's not important to this piece of information, but they put an ice cube by the bottom of a foot of newborn babies. Now, that would be uncomfortable for anyone. But imagine a newborn baby that has like a, an ice cube by the bottom of its foot, right? And they found there were two results. You ready for this? Some babies cried and cried and cried, and other babies moved their foot. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? It shows you how deeply implanted our personalities are and how we react to, to adversity. How we react to adversity is one of the things that's hardwired into us from birth. But then, once you know it, now you know you can move your foot. <laughs> What's so interesting to me about the human mind, and I, I say this with love and sympathy, really, is that for the person who's crying and crying, it doesn't even occur to them that they can move their foot. It's not that they're being lazy, right? It doesn't even occur to them that that's an option to move their foot. 
Whereas there are other people in the world where it's sort of like, whoa, that's cold. I'm moving my foot. <laughs> like, I hate winter. I'm moving to California. <laughs> right? You mean that's an option? I can escape winter? I didn't know. No one told me that. So, but again, let's, let's get back to the, the point because I want to go deeper into this point, which is if someone wants to actually believe, if someone wants to actually be like Yosef, to be able to take something that few humans in the world would be able to get over, which is being sold into slavery by their own brothers. It's not enough just to say, okay, you know something intellectually, you know something, I figured it out. I figured it out. There's going to be a famine. God needed me to be in this position because for whatever reason, I'm uniquely able to balance all these things and have a vision for this thing and, you know, bureaucratically instituted while staying on the good side of the king and the people and everything like that. For whatever reason, I was the man for the job, and so I did it. And I guess that's why you had to sell me into slavery. You see, what, what I'm trying to do in, in that version is to show you how you can arrive at that same conclusion intellectually. And so since that's what God wanted, you know, I guess it wasn't you, so just forget, you know, just forget about it. Don't be mad at yourself. But that's very different from what Yosef actually did. And to jump levels from that intellectual understanding of, okay, I guess this is why it all worked out, it had to be like this, to, no, I forgive you because God only meant good by this. He actually believed that. He had to believe in the goodness of God. Now I want to show you how this works mathematically, <laughs> okay? That might sound like a bold statement, but, but that's what we're going to do right now. I'm going to give you a teaching. This is a Kabbalistic teaching from the Pischei Sharim, okay, from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, who's one of the greatest students of the Vilna Gon, a couple of generations after the Vilna Gon. And he got his Kabbalistic Masorah, you know, all the, all the secrets, right? So now listen to this. In the beginning of the Torah, when God is talking about each of the, the first day of creation, the second day of creation, all the way through the first seven days of creation. And remember the Ramban points out that each one of those days stands for a thousand years. So, so we're not just talking about the creation of the world itself, that this is like a roadmap for the future history of mankind until we reach the seventh day, which is the seventh millennium, which is not just the Sabbath day, but the Messianic era, which is called Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. So the first seven days are not just what went on at that point in time, but rather, it's very, you know, it's worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. It's a, it's a microcosm for the grand structure. 
So with that in mind, it's very significant that God keeps on calling creation good. He keeps on saying it's good, and it's good, and it's good. And at the end he says it's very good. How many times? Six times. Interestingly, when it comes to the Sabbath day, God doesn't call it good because Shabbos is already on another level, right? You know, I always like this piece of imagery. I think I heard it from Rabbi Beryl Wine that the first six days of creation, like imagine a rolled up carpet and imagine you roll out, you unfurl the carpet that's the first six days of creation. Meaning to say, in terms of time and space, the first six days of creation are made out of the same energy. Shabbos is made out of something completely different. It's not just it's the seventh day of the week. It's made out of something completely different. It's a separate creation. And in fact, if I were to ask you, what is the last thing that God creates? Well, you could say man. Well, you'd almost be right, except that God creates woman after man. And that's one of the sources that, spiritually speaking, women are higher than men because God keeps on amping up and making more and more sophisticated creation. Right? You've got, first you've got like stars and planets, and then you've got like organic material, like animals, and you've got more sophisticated animals, then you've got man, and then you've got woman. Okay? And it seems like that would be the answer, that the last thing God makes is woman. Except that's not right. The last thing God creates is Shabbos. That's his last creation. It's amazing. That's amazing. And it shows you that Shabbos is made out of something completely different than the first six days of the week. Okay, so now let's get back to the Pesachai Sharem. He points out that how many times does God say that the world is good when he's creating the world? And the answer is six times. Now the word good is tov, which is gematria 17. That's the number 17, okay? And I'll tell you something interesting. I just realized this this morning. This, this year, it's the first time where we've started this new book, Sefer Shmos, Exodus. And all I've been thinking is one thing. I've been thinking two things. One, ah, I'm so glad to be with Moshe again. Like before, as I was finishing up Breshi's, Year after year, all I was thinking about was, oh, it's so sad that I'm going to have to leave the, the avos behind, right? Like, it's so beautiful to learn and to live with them. And somehow this year I was just thinking, I can't wait to get to Moshe. And, and, and then I started thinking something else, which is, I want to get to the giving of the Torah already. <laughs> you know, you've got... So much going on. We've got all the plagues and, and all of the back and forth with Pyro and like all these amazing miracles and, and, and revelations. But I've just been thinking, let's get to the Torah already. Right? I want the Torah already. 
So with that in mind, I decided to count up which number Parsha is Parsha's Yisra. Which number Parsha is the Torah given? And you want to hear something interesting? It's Parsha number 17, which is Tov. And it says in Perkei Avos, I have given you a good, I've given you something good. And the rabbis explain that good thing is the Torah. So Tov is the Torah. 17, the 17th Parsha is the Tov. That is the Tov of creation, the Torah itself. So God says creation is good six times when he's creating the world. And the Pischei Sharm says, okay, what is six times 17? Right? God says creation is good. Good is Gematria 17. Tov is 17. And he says, Tov, which is 17, six times. So what's six times 17? You ready for this? It's 102, which is the gematria of the word amuna, which is faith. Let me unpack that for you. Do you know what that means? You see, it's easy to see the goodness of God on Shabbos. But what about the six days of the week, right? God says creation is good six times, which correlates with the six days of the week. Where you're in the world, where it's hard, where you feel exile, where you feel all the competing pressures and everything like that. I was telling the Hebra that when I first started keeping Shabbos, I used to call Shabbos Fortress Shabbos. It's a fortress. When I'd get into Shabbos, I'd be like, you can't get me now. No one can get me. Right? My phone is off. Like, to this day, one of the highlights of my week is when I turn off my phone right before Shabbos, and it's like, you're not the master of me. I'm the master of you. You know? That's not how I feel, by the way, during most of the week. <laughs> but it's nice to assert it definitively on Shabbos. So during the week, during the six days of the week, it's not so apparent all the goodness that's there. But if you believe that God is good, then you have a Muna. If during, right, six times 17, God says that creation is good six times, correlating with the six days of the week. If during the six days of the week, you can say God is good, then you have a Muna. Then you have faith. So now let's go deeper into this idea of faith. I was talking with someone on Shabbos, and he said, the highest thing is to see something with your own eyes. And I said, no, that's not true at all. The highest thing is to believe something. And he was like, really? And let me show you now why believing is greater than seeing. And there's two teachings. The first is a story about the Kutzka Rebbe. The Kutzka Rebbe was in a sukkah, and there was either the son or the grandson of one of the great Rebbe's who was there. And this, this person said to the Kutzka Rebbe in the sukkah, my father, grandfather, whichever it was, was so great. And he, he really was one of the greatest Hasidic masters. 
that when Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov walked into the sukkah, he could see them with his own eyes. And the Katzka Rebbe said, said back to him, he says, he said, when Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov enter the sukkah, the Katzka Rebbe said, I can't see them with my own eyes but I believe that they're there. And because I believe that they're there, I see them even better than your grandfather. All right? I'm going to give you, we'll explain that in a second. I'm going to give you the second teaching. This is from the Talmud. Rabbi Yochanan, who is the head of the Talmud Yerushalmi, right? Remember, you had two groups of rabbis that were learning simultaneously, one set was in the land of Israel, and the other set was in, in Babel, in Babylonia. And in fact, we have two separate Talmuds, which are largely the same, but they're different. We have the Babylonian Talmud, and we have the Yerushalmi Talmud. And the one that's learned much more frequently is the Babylonian Talmud, by the way. But they say that the Yerushalmi Talmud is actually higher. And an interesting contrast in phraseology is that when they would introduce a teaching in the Babylonian Talmud, they would say, come in here. And in the Yerushalmi Talmud, they introduce a teaching by saying, come and see. So it's, it's even higher. By the way, your eyes are above your ears, on your, on your face, on your head, to show you that seeing is even higher than hearing. But I'm going to extend that teaching and say that your mind is above your eyes, which shows you that believing is even higher than seeing. <laughs> but let's get to it. So Rabbi Yochanan, the head of the Yerushami Talmud, is teaching. And he starts talking about how when the third Beis Amigdash is going to be built, that God is going to use these gemstones. And this is based on a prophecy from Yecheskel. And these gemstones are going to be giant, and the entire gates of the entrance to Yerushalayim are going to be made out of them. Now this student is listening and really very skeptical. And he says, Rebbe, you, you can't find a, a pearl that's larger than a bird's egg. What are you talking about, that the gates of Yerushalayim are going to be built out of these pearls and gemstones? It just, it, it simply doesn't make any sense. It doesn't track with reality. Sometime later, that student was on a ship and he was sailing. And he looked up into the sky and he saw angels constructing gates with these enormous pearls and gems. And he asked them, what are you, what are you doing? And they said, we are constructing the gateways to the future Yerushalayim. And this student was so amazed that when he got back into the city, he ran back to Rabbi Yochanan and he said, he said, continue to teach. Everything you're saying is true. I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. Now, I always remember being struck by this because when I was reading that, I thought, 
how do you think Rabbi Yochanan is going to respond to this student? By going, wow, you saw it with your own eyes. That's amazing. He says back to him, empty one, fool. You had to see it in order to believe it? So that's, that's really interesting. Here you see that believing is higher than seeing. Now let me try to explain it to you. When God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. Because God keeps his word, which means that if God promises to do something, it's going to be done. Which means that even if it hasn't entered into the world yet, it does exist. It exists on a way that's above nature still, perhaps, but it does exist. It hasn't reached its full manifestation in the world yet, but it does exist. That means that events are going to take place that we can't see with our eyes yet, and yet are there. Which means that if you know that they're going to take place, even before they've taken place, you know that they're there. Which means that you can actually see things that aren't there yet. In other words, you can understand that the world is unfolding toward redemption. You understand that. You see things in a positive way that other people don't see. But how do you see it? You see it through your belief. But it's not just that you're imagining it or you're projecting positive energy onto the world. Those could be elements to it. But there's something more fundamental happening here, which is that because God has willed it and has promised it, it is in the world. Again, it hasn't become fully manifest in the world yet, but it is in the world, which means that you can see things that aren't even there yet. That's why believing is higher than seeing, because it allows you to see things that aren't even there yet that will be there in the future. When God says the redemption is going to take place, it's going to take place. It's been built into creation from even before there was a creation, because it was God's idea going into creation. In other words, his very intention before creating the world was to create a perfect world. And as I've explained to you many times before, the world is still in the process of being created. Now this is answering the biggest question that everybody has, which is if there is a God, why is the world so messed up? And there is an answer, a very clear, straightforward answer. It's because the world isn't finished yet. Now, I just saw something in the Pischei Sharm, an amazing piece of information, amazing, amazing piece of information. You see, this is, again, I'm telling you some basic ideas of Kabbalah right now. We have these two words that if you kind of run in these circles, you'll, you'll hear. One is tohu and the other is tikkun. So what is, what is tohu and what is tikkun? These are two very fundamental ideas about understanding creation and destiny. Tohu is chaos. Tohu is, is shviras hakelem, the shattering of the vessels at the time that God set about to create the universe. Okay? Tikkun is all these parts coming together to make the physical universe that we inhabit right now. And tikkun usually means fixing, like it's fixed. Like sometimes if, 
you see in a lot of Hasidic stories that if someone did something wrong, they go to a Rebbe and they ask for a tikkun. What can I do to fix this thing? I'll tell you a story, or just the end of a story, that, that I think is very interesting. Just an example of a tikkun. But you have to go to a tzaddik for a tikkun. Because, like, really just tzaddik understands, like, all the soul dynamics and things like that. But here's just an example. Someone committed murder. And I heard this in the name of the Baal Shem Tov. Someone committed murder, and they went to the Baal Shem Tov, and they said, what kind of tikkun can I do to fix this? So if you think about it, like... Well, you can't reverse murder, so there is basically no tikkun, right? But what tikkun was recommended for him? And I thought this was fascinating. He told him, go around and make mikvahs, wherever you can make mikvahs. And what's the idea? Because a woman goes into a mikvah before she brings life into the world. Do you hear how that's counteracting murder, bringing life into the world? So by making mikvahs, he's bringing more life into the world. Fascinating. Fascinating. So that's, that's an idea of a tikkun. So we've got these two terms, tohu, chaos, and tikkun. Okay, then, then we have this physical universe. But here's the misnomer, and here's what everyone has to understand. That tikkun that was done by God in the beginning of creation, it's still in process. Like when we, when we use this word tikkun, we tend to think of it as past tense, as though it was already done. Just like we look around us and we think that the world has already been created. And we can't wrap our minds around the fact that Everything looks so complete around us. If the world has already been created, how could God have finished while there's still evil in the world? Well, as I just told you, it's not finished. Just like the initial tikkun that was done in the beginning of creation wasn't finished. That initial tikkun is still going on. So you say to me, well, wait a second. I see walls, and I see a ceiling, and I see gravity, and I see the sun going up, and the moon going up, and I see, you know... You plant things and they grow. It seems like reality is working pretty well, that the tikkun was made, that things are finished. So, says the Pischei Sharim, and here's the piece of information, on a physical level, yes. On a spiritual level, not yet. The tikkun that is still going on from the beginning of creation is on the level of neshamos, is on a soul level. And that's what we're working on to this day. We are completing the soul level of creation. That's a very strong idea. That's a very fundamental idea. You know, Reb Shlomo said that on the seventh day, on Shabbos, right, we talked about the difference between the first six days of creation and the seventh day. That the first six days of creation, God put, God made the world, this physical world around us. On the seventh day, on Shabbos, God gave the world a soul. 
And if you think about it, that teaching very much resonates with what I just told you. Because what do we call the Messianic period? Yom Shukulo Shabbos, the day that will be all soul. So that's what we're trying to do in terms of making a tikkun on soul energy during this part of the exile, until Mashiach comes. Completing this soul energy till we get to a day that's all soul. Now I want to tell you an idea that I had, connecting to this idea, but it's a new idea, but it's connecting to what I just said. You could ask a question. You could say if, if it was only on Shabbos that God gave the world a soul, but wait a second, God created human beings on the sixth day, and human beings had a soul. So doesn't that mean that the world did have a soul, if human beings had a soul on the sixth day? What are you telling me that God only gave the world a soul on the seventh day? So I want to answer the question like this. On the sixth day, we had a soul, but the world did not yet. And when you have a soul, you know what that means? You have a sense of purpose. But can I tell you the deepest form of exile? When you feel like you have a sense of purpose, but the world that you're in does not. Can you imagine? You have a sense of purpose, but you're in a world that doesn't have any sense of purpose. That's a very, very deep exile. You know, there are a lot of people who they, they understand that they have a soul inside of them and they hang out with people who think the world has no purpose. That's like being Adam or Chava before Shabbos was created. Because, you know, you're trapped in an environment from your friends, from your college, from your workplace, from wherever you're inhabiting, where you understand there's a sense of purpose and you're surrounded by people who don't think that anything has a purpose. But you know what God did on the seventh day? He gave the world a soul. And then do you know what? Adam and Chava, human beings, realized, I have a purpose, and the world has a purpose. That's what Shabbos brought to the world. I have a purpose, and the world has a purpose. And now I'm like a key going into a lock. And now that I know the world has a purpose, I can, through my actions, through Torah and mitzvahs, unlock the meaning of the world by revealing the oneness of God. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.